university professors spend a lot of time talking to each other about popular culture in academic journals and at academic conferences. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals and I want to talk to you. Some of the most brilliant thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard, and I'm on a mission to change that. Brilliant people, fascinating conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers. And joining me today on the line is Dustin Dunaway. Dustin is the chair of English and Communication at Pueblo Community College in Pueblo, Colorado. He is also one of our founding deconstruction workers, one of our original cast members, so to speak. Welcome back to the show, Dustin. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So today what we are talking about is nostalgia, but if you're a savvy listener, you know we've talked about nostalgia in the past. Today we're going to talk about it in a very different way in that we are going to focus specifically today on the 1980s. And the reason we're going to focus on the 1980s is twofold. Number one, because it has the best culture, the best popular culture, comes out of the 1980s. And number two, because people won't stop pillaging 1980s culture, which is how we know it's the best. So we're going to talk about both of those things and maybe some reasons why the 1980s seems to be the nostalgia culture we continually go back to in popular culture. And I'm going to make it through an entire episode on the 1980s without mentioning my two dads even once. (laughs) (laughs) So... Dustin, do you have any setup work you want to do before we get started in this? I think you pretty much covered it all. I'm sure that we're going to be talking about the changes in technology and legislation that led to the 1980s being a very different time for popular culture than many of the other times that we might go back to. And also just how the 1980s specifically, uh, always going back to that, always being nostalgic for that, why that may not be a healthy thing for a culture. Oh, we're going to have some disagreement today then. Awesome. Okay, so... (laughs) Because I'm going to argue going back to the 80s is exactly what this culture needs. But let's start by talking about how the 1980s developed in terms of popular culture. Because when we talk about 1980s culture, we're talking about a range of cultural products. It's not just 80s television or just 80s movies or just 80s music. It's all of it. It's everything from the rise of video game culture to the rise of commercial tie-ins, particularly when it comes to television products and toys, to changes in the film industry and the way that movies were made and distributed. So we've got a lot on tap for today. Where do you want to start? I think the, the the first place to start is probably with that, why did it happen that way? And I know that one thing that you've talked about before, especially with uh, Rick Stevens, is the 1983 uh, Communications Act and the deregulation that happened in terms of what advertisers could do with popular culture, especially where it comes to toy advertisers. Where I come at it, these two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive, and in fact, they're mutually reinforcing, is the big changes in technology at the time. So we're looking at things like the ubiquity of VCRs, that you could actually record something off of television, watch it over and over again. And what happened then is pop culture becomes sort of a language unto itself. You know, there are people who are in the know who quote, you know, real genius, back in the future, just one of the guys, all of, all of these 1980s movies that constantly get quoted and requoted. And if you run into someone who also knows that quote, you immediately made a new best friend. And that was a thing that definitely developed over the 1990s. And now it's just, we communicate through quotes and memes, and it's the evolution that we've arrived at now of this constant modification and reuse of popular culture. And I think that that really started with the the invention and 
commonality of the VCR. Couple of things. Let's cliff notes the beginning of this conversation because we have covered it so many times on this program and then talk about those technological advancements. So if this is the first time you're listening or if you don't want to go back and listen to older episodes, in 1983, Ronald Reagan appoints a guy named Mark Fowler to be the commissioner of the FCC. Ronald Reagan is on a big deregulation kick. Although, as we have talked about in the past, deregulation is regulation. Regulation makes business practices harder for a market. Deregulation makes business practices easier for a market. But they are both market interference. The notion that somehow deregulation leads to a quote-unquote free market is patently ridiculous. It's still a government intervention in the market. But Reagan is on this gigantic deregulation kick. And at the same time, there's a group of parents who are really mad about sugar cereals. And they go to the Federal Trade Commission and they say, hey, these sugar cereals are bad and they're advertising to our kids and we don't like it and please make them stop. The Federal Trade Commission is going to make a ruling. Instead, the cereal companies go to Congress and say, hey, could you stop them from doing this because we don't need a quote-unquote national nanny? And Congress strips away the power of the Federal Trade Commission to regulate children's advertising, which is the only floodgate that needed to get opened for Ronald Reagan. He appoints this guy named Mark Fowler to be the commissioner of the FCC, and Mark Fowler carries out the last of the children's advertising deregulations. If you were a kid in 1984... This is part of the reason why those of us who do micro-generational research, research on micro-generations, this is why we actually end Generation X at 1973, and why we begin a brand new generation in 1974, is because if you were a 10-year-old child or younger in 1984, you were the target of an immense media blitz to sell you stuff. Think of all of the massive popular culture products that came out between 1983 and 1984. Think of He-Man and G.I. Joe and Transformers and My Little Pony and the Smurfs and, and, and. It all came out in this same year and a half to two year span because it was the first time in history that it was ever allowed to do that. And so it's why we marker a new generation there, because if you are what is now being referred to as a C-80 or a child of the 80s, if you're a C-80, what used to be the sort of younger end of Generation X before we started splitting that generation there, you are probably among the most iconographic people currently walking around in our culture. As Dustin said, you are probably very fluid very fluent in popular culture as a language because it's how we related to each other during that time period. People had access to this new popular culture for the first time, and it's how you figured out who your friends were and what you had to talk about. And I have distinct memories of schoolyard arguments over whether you were a Transformers kid or you were a G.I. Joe kid, if you liked Michael Jackson or if you liked Prince. There was all of these iconographic gang fights on the playground about which side of these dichotomous conflicts you were on. And the reason for that is because of just the ready availability of popular culture to us as kids at that time. And I remember I, along with my friends at the time, bought it hook, line, and sinker. I still, to this day, have in my closet Transformers that I bought in 1984 and He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. I was eight years old right around this time, and I was the target demographic for that. So I'm definitely guilty of falling into that commodification trap. I don't know. I guess I hesitate to call it a trap. If it was a trap, the door to the trap was pretty wide open and not very well concealed. No, it definitely looking back, we can see how wide open that was and how blatant the marketing and the targeting of us was. I think at the time, it just felt like here is a new thing. If you are cool, you will buy the new thing. And being eight years old, you always just kind of want the new thing. 
whether it was first for me, it was He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, and then it was G.I. Joe, and then it was Transformers, kind of skipped over GoBots there. but It's funny you say that because GoBots came out first. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. GoBots predate Transformers. Right. And I remember some friends who were definitely into GoBots. And I thought, eh, they're okay. And then Transformers came out and I was like, hey, look at all of these awesome robots that transform into vehicles. And my GoBot friends were kind of salty about that because <laughs> you know, they, they've been on the train for a while. It did become the sort of thing that both united and divided us. The other part of that is also, it was something that is definitely, as with all popular culture, was definitely something that was class-based. Because in order to take part in all of this popular culture, you know, you had to be able to afford Transformers, which were not as expensive as they are now. <laughs> if you have a mint in sealed in condition, sure. you know, 1984 Skywarp or whatever, which I'm sure you do. Which I do. Which you do. You know, in order to collect all of these things, you had to have money. And for someone like me who came from a rural area, yeah, I was very passionate about it. And I got most of these things. But for a lot of people, they weren't able to partake in this. So there was that kind of, this became a class-based sort of thing. Well, sure. That's true for most versions of popular culture. When we talk about popular culture fandom, as we have almost every single time on this show, it, it always boils back to access, what you have socioeconomic access to. And in terms of Transformers specifically, we say, well, they weren't as expensive then as they are now, but relatively speaking, they actually were more expensive then than they are now. If you right. think about the fact that you walk in the store today, I walk in the store, I want to buy some Transformers, I go to the shelf, they are nineteen ninety nine for one. And that's the sort of lower end of the spectrum. They can go all the way up to seventy nine ninety nine, depending on which one you're trying to get. But even at nineteen ninety nine, we go back and I still have KB Toy Store stickers on a lot of the boxes <laughs> of stuff that I have in my house, collector's stuff. And you look at those boxes, the prices on those were like fifteen ninety nine, which comparatively speaking is almost $30 today. So they're significantly more expensive, almost a third more expensive in 1984, 85, when I was buying them, when my parents really were buying them then as to when I am buying them now. Yeah, uh, and, and that's kind of my point, is that a lot of this did come down to access in a way that I think previous iterations of popular culture in the 1960s and 1970s didn't necessarily. Barbie was probably one of the more expensive things, or the Easy Bake Oven, but those types of things were very specific to a certain type of person. For things like Transformers, yes, they were marketed towards young boys, but it was also a marker of masculinity. So it was all young boys. Lindsay Ellis actually does a really good YouTube video about especially the Bayformers and how that represents not just consumerism, but also the masculinity of the 1980s. And that's definitely true with the Transformers cartoon and the G.I. Joe cartoon. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. Popular culture then was vastly more gendered than it is now, particularly in terms of storylines and that kind of stuff. But I also want to go back to something interesting you said, which was this deregulation, particularly of children's advertising, was largely coupled with the advent of particular technologies, including the home video game console and mm -hmm. the essentially home movie studio with the advent of Betamax and then into VHS and really into Laserdisc. Laserdisc is probably the final stop for the 1980s in terms of video distribution. And the interesting ways in which those technologies come together to create a really specific nostalgia time capsule in a way that probably wasn't even possible prior to the 1980s. You don't see a whole lot of popular culture outside of the really big things like Jaws or The Godfather. You don't see a whole lot of that from the 1970s, but you see a ton of it from the 1980s, including the crap. <laughs> that's that's what really survived. Right. Is 
is it's not E.T. It's this show that we all used to watch, like Fraggle Rock, which is not crap, but you know. <laughs> uh, oh, I thought you and I were no, about to get in a giant fight no, right here on I'm, the show. <laughs> Fraggle Rock is lovely, but I'm I'm thinking of things that a lot of children of the '80s that we were talking about would recognize, but would recognize as crap. Would recognize as part of their childhood, but I don't think that we would see that same thing from children of the 70s. So things like not necessarily the news or brain games or things that aren't as ubiquitous in our popular culture now. So one of the things that I've seen a lot is the reuse of the Miami Vice logo on on a number of 2000s-ish Uh, I think Iggy Azalea had it in one of her videos. The Jonas Brothers used it on their recent album cover. So Miami Vice survives in that way that everyone goes back to that and says, oh, that was definitely from the 1980s. Children of the 1980s, though, can also remember a lot of stuff that isn't that doesn't survive in the same way. But I don't think that that happens with the 1960s and 1970s nearly as much, or at least it doesn't get talked about. Well, it was much more difficult in the 1960s and 1970s and previous decades, obviously, to collect and store that stuff. Right, exactly. You think about if you wanted to show a movie at your house in the 1970s, you somehow had to get your hands on a reel. And then you had to have a reel projector in your house. In order to show the movie. And the distribution of film was really the studios and the television networks. They had pretty much complete control over that. Then along comes the 1980s, and now there are VCRs. There's also the advent of HBO, Home Box Office, which allowed movie studios a place to second run their films and a place for people at home to be able to see a film that maybe they couldn't afford to see in the theater, or maybe they couldn't afford to take their whole family, certainly. Or maybe they were, because the 80s was the time of me, 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 and business, 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 maybe they were too busy working to go to the theater. And it allowed for you to watch those movies at home. And then the VCR, the VHS, allowed people to buy those movies and have them and watch them as many times as they wanted to. Or if you were me and my brother and sister, we could tape things off the television and then watch them as many times as we wanted to. That couldn't really happen in any concerted way in any decade before that. And that's kind of my point about the changes in technology, which is you didn't just record something because it was on at midnight and you weren't going to be up then. You recorded something and then you watched it over and over and over again until you memorized it. And that's something that you really couldn't do prior to that. I mean, you might memorize passages from books, but unless they were running it in your local theater as part of a revival, you couldn't go see something from the 1960s or 70s multiple times just because... You know, as you said, the the studio controls what plays when, and the the bias is always going to be toward what the the new movie is coming out. So, yeah, having the VCR allows you to record things and then not just watch them over and over again, but also they become kind of ingrained in your personality. I mean, the number of just things I say during the day are like ninety percent eighties quotes, I think, and. Sometimes people recognize them and sometimes people don't. And when people do recognize them, I've made a new friend. Right. I understand that completely. When I was growing up, people would always say, oh, you know, you're so funny. You're so funny. And what they didn't realize is I had recorded and watched hundreds of hours of stand-up comedy. Oh, yeah. I was just memorizing comedy routines. And kids who didn't have as good a cable as I did had no idea where all these funny things I was saying came from. But I was sort of the king of the middle school playground in terms of being able to rattle off and reconstitute, combine, take a joke from this person and a joke from this person and a joke from this person and reconstitute them into one little routine that sounds off the cuff, sounds like I'm making it up in the moment and being able to get huge laughs off of kids in the playground. And it's interesting to me how, you're right, how much of our popular culture became a part of our personalities until someone watches Eddie Murphy raw or Bill Cosby himself <laughs> right. and says, Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> right. 
but but then that person's in the know, right? And then you start you could start riffing off of each other if you were clever and able to pull them in before it became accusatory. You you have times when you know you and your buddies are sitting around, you start the routine and they're able to finish it. That becomes a whole bonding thing. Absolutely. So yeah. And again, that's not necessarily new. I mean, kids were listening to comedy albums in the 70s, sneak down late at night and put on Richard Pryor and listen to it or whatever and memorize it. But just the amount of access and the number of things we had at our disposal completely changed the game. Talking about countless hours of... HBO is a different thing now than it used to be. Yes. <laughs> just the, the amount of what, looking back on it, is definitely filler. Back in the 1980s, they, they would have the comedy hours for people that you've never heard of before. Uh, stand-up comedians, some guy in a nightclub up against a brick wall. And they don't really have that type of thing anymore. You have to be a pretty big name to, to get an HBO special now because they do have so much content. The HBO half-hour comedy hour. Right. That was one of the greatest parts of the early 80s was, as you said, just these guys and women just going on stage and you get a half an hour and better be funny. It was a regular occurrence. And a lot of great comedians came from that. Jerry Seinfeld, Ellen DeGeneres, but there were also a lot of not great comedians that were on there as well. So just the sure amount of content that you had access to, especially if you did have a VCR and you could just record and scan through and find out what you liked. That's another thing that the VCR did was allow you so much access to so much. You were able to be a little bit more choosy about what you liked and what you didn't like. It wasn't like the 1970s or 60s or 50s where they just gave you stuff and you had to take it because that's what they gave you. Even though we say that the free market is definitely not free because there aren't a whole lot of choices today. But there also weren't a lot of choices back in, say, like the 1950s where you had maybe the Dumont network was your fourth network. But, you know, you had basically three channels and two of them were probably snow. So in the 1980s, also the deregulation of the cable industry. So you get HBO, you get Showtime, you get Cinemax. You start to get things like WTBS and WGN, which are are now broadcasting all over the nation rather than just in their local regions. So you get a lot more information. You get a lot more popular culture and access to popular culture as a result of that. Which then leads to this idea today that all of that popular culture that we grew up with The people who grew up with us are now in positions of power to be able to go back and revisit some of these things, sometimes in ways that are awesome and sometimes in ways that are decidedly less awesome. For example, one of the things that you and I have talked about extensively is the change that has happened over the course of the last 30 some odd years in professional wrestling. Yes. And how wrestling now bears very little resemblance to wrestling when we were kids. Both of us, both you and I, are probably more well-versed in professional wrestling than the average person, certainly. But even more well-versed than people who actually like and study professional wrestling. Both of us were old-school wrestling fans. And by that, I mean the kind of wrestling that was on television and around before Vince McMahon came along and sort of Saturday morning cartooned professional wrestling. Both of us are are Southern wrestling fans. What might be referred to as the kayfabe era. Yes, the kayfabe era. You knew that it was not real in the the strictest sense, but at least they went through the motions of pretending it was, unlike Vince McMahon, where you had Papa Shango or (laughs) Magic Axe and people getting struck by lightning and all sorts of different things. And so... Yeah, the the idea that they're competing, there's a competition, people actually care about winning championships and their win-loss records, all of those sorts of things were definitely part of the era that you and I grew up in. Not only that, but the way that the wrestlers themselves were presented was much different. There weren't a lot of these big WWE-style wrestling entrances. People came out, you know, they hit their music, they came out, they were in their wrestling gear, they were ready to go, they walked to the ring, and then they started punching each other. It wasn't like four minutes of them walking down and hugging the fans and fireworks and pyro and light shows and all of that stuff. It was much more presented as an actual sporting contest where these two 
people who both of whom looked like they could hurt you. They didn't look like they had gym muscles. They looked like they had been, you know, out bailing hay and throwing tires around all day. Drinking beer at the bar at night and, you know, big barrel chested guys. These dudes come down to the ring eating a bologna sandwich and then getting in the ring and then beating each other up. It was a very different presentation. Well, Vince McMahon gets his hands on the national contracts slowly but surely over the course of the early 80s. By the time the mid-80s roll around, he is able to present WrestleMania, which changes the whole game, very much nationalizes the product, and it gets down to two major promotions, as we've talked about on the show before, and one is based in the Northeast, one is based in the South. Eventually, by the time we are adults, the WWE has basically eaten all of its rivals, and things go kind of quiet. Then... This year, a new promotion comes on the air. And that new promotion is full of independent wrestlers, and it's very much modern, and it starts this big Wednesday Night War, which we'll have to have a whole other show about. That is good. But it starts this big Wednesday Night War, and everyone's talking about it. And into that fight comes NWA Power. NWA Power is a super interesting program yes why nwa power is interesting in that first we probably need to set up that the the nwa never actually went away it was essentially the ncaa of professional wrestling in that you know you had a a, a regional wrestling and you know it was based in a city and that's where you went that you had your local federation and the national wrestling alliance was all of those local feds put together you are being very generous (laughs) in your description because how i would describe it is the nwa was the professional wrestling mafia and these cartel owners from most of the major promotions especially in the big cities memphis indianapolis new york charlotte these promoters got together to have a basic stranglehold on professional wrestling for most of its existence all the way up through the very early 80s. A lot of the hatred for Vince McMahon comes from the fact that they essentially shut the NWA down for the most part in terms of at least its national reach. Yes, it was, you know, sort of these territory owners, but they also were very much mobsters. I'm also pretty critical of the NCAA, so (laughs) So that's probably why we (laughs) put these on the same level. Fair comparison. So the NWA kind of goes away from the public eye for quite a while. And then Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins comes along, purchases all of the rights to the name and kind of the intellectual property of the NWA and decides he wants to run a show. And this show, which is called NWA Power, airs on YouTube and now, as of this coming Saturday, Fight TV network so if you have either of those apps you can watch nwa power hour-long show but the really interesting thing is it copies exactly the aesthetic of uh, 1980s early regional wrestling that you and i grew up with with the exception of it is shot with an hd camera but that's the only real difference right it's the 1980s in 4k the set looks exactly the same the wrestling even is much more reserved I've noticed you don't see a whole lot of you know, springboard planches that you might see in WWE or even AEW. It's not this high-flying trapeze act. It's very much more centered and grounded in reality. And even down to the personalities of the wrestlers, much more old school, including in the opening episode, they have this featurette on one of the wrestlers and they talk about how in his spare time, because wrestlers don't make a ton of money, now, he's a school teacher, and he wrestles on the weekends, and there's something pure about that, or at least the aesthetics of purity, that, I don't know, it, it feels so much more authentic to me. It feels like wrestling. Yes. It feels like wrestling, how I still, in my head, think of professional wrestling, even 35 years later. It's not Bobby Lashley giving Lana a massage. It's none of that. Yeah. This is, guy comes out, another guy comes out. They punch each other in the face. One of them wins. Yep. One of them takes the belt. They they stop by the announce table. 
to you know yell at their next opponent and then the credits roll and we're good one of the key things that i think is the most amazing is the opening theme song is by dokken a 1980s <laughs> hair metal band so this is very very intentional taking us back yes. to the 1980s it's a return to what's called studio wrestling when wrestling happened in the same television studio every single week, some small studio in Atlanta or in Indianapolis or in Chicago, wherever, and the same people showed up every week and they ran 52 weeks out of the year and only 150 people could get in the building. And it's a very 1980s presentation. They don't run a lot of what are called angles. They don't do that. Angles are storylines in professional wrestling. WWE is famous for caring way more about angles than they do about actual wrestling. NWA is the exact opposite. The only storyline they need is this guy came out and slapped this other guy in the mouth, and now they have to fight. That's all the storyline they need. Right, and what they've done mostly instead of relying on angles is very slow character builds. So, for example, the current champion is Nick Aldis. He's you know, very slick. He's very put together. He looks like a wrestler. He does a very good job. He has a manager named Camille who he does not allow to speak. One of the interesting things is that's a very strong character building thing that you know is going to pay off later because you know you can't just, it's Chekhov's gun, right? Uh, eventually that will pay off, but it's not something that calls attention to itself. It doesn't need an immediate payoff. It builds both of their characters in a way that it can be used later. And that's the thing that we used to see in the 1980s that has really kind of gone away because it has to be instant gratification in the WWE. I totally agree. Let's pause right here. Let's come back in two and two, and we will continue this conversation. I know you're sitting there right now enjoying this podcast, The Deconstruction Workers, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? If you have, let me talk to you a little bit about Blueberry.com. Blueberry is the hosting service where The Deconstruction Workers lives and thousands of other podcasts. There are no contracts with Blueberry.com. You can cancel at any time. Blueberry is optimized for Apple, for Google Podcasts, for Spotify. There's free technical support. You are given a free WordPress website. Blueberry.com is an amazing place to host a podcast, and it is very, very affordable. If you'd like to give it a try yourself, go to www.blubrry.com, use the promo code PODCASTDCW, and get a free month. And now, back to the show. And we're back. Before the jump, we were talking about the nostalgic return of NWA power and the 1980s aesthetic and why we like the 1980s aesthetic so much. If we're talking about things in the 1980s or things with the 1980s aesthetic, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about Stranger Things and the popularity of Stranger Things and why the particular 80s culture that Stranger Things embraces is so resonant for so many people. And I think it's a, a very similar sort of thing. It's just that the, it's the difference between being nostalgic for 80s wrestling and being nostalgic for 80s movies and music specifically. One of the things that's really interesting is that you can almost always situate a scene or a film with the music that you use. So one example that I always teach in class is I play Creedence Clearwater Revival's Fortunate Son, which, if you don't know the title, you definitely have heard the song. Some folks are born made to wave the flag, cool their red, white, and blue. And even though I didn't live through the Vietnam era, when I hear that song, I am nostalgic for that time period. It's, it's nostalgia for a time period that I never <laughs> lived, even lived through. through with many of my younger students and many younger people that I talk to. There are a lot of people who are nostalgic when they hear something like Flock of Seagulls or Tears for Fears. And these were people who were born in the 1990s. And some of my students now born in 2001, 2002, they, they still are nostalgic for a, a time period that they never existed in. But they have this feeling that goes along with it. And I think that that's one of the things that Stranger Things 
captures so well uh, is that love letter to the 1980s. Particularly in the first season. Yes. I think they've sort of gotten away from it a little bit in the later seasons, but that first season is very much grounded in the 1980s. Maybe one of the problems with it is as something becomes more popular, it starts to rely on the things that made it popular. So instead of just having it situated in the 1980s and having that be an excuse for why they're listening to Cindy Lauper or something like that, the, they start calling attention to the fact that this is a 1980s property, nostalgia property. So one scene, I think it's in the first episode of the third season, there's a scene in which one of the characters, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, he's a lifeguard, and he steps out. Billy. Billy, yes. And it's got the cars moving in stereo, and all of the women are looking at him. And that's great as someone who does what you and I do, because it's, it inverts the trope of the woman being looked at. But also, I'm very aware that the filmmakers know this, and it takes me out of the narrative, because the only way that that makes sense as a scene is if you've seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So it has to be based intertextually on another property, which I don't think that the first season had nearly as much. It just happened to be, this takes place in the 80s. This is what they listened to. They played Dungeons and Dragons. This is what they would talk about. That made a whole lot more sense. Whereas now it's, hey, remember that thing from the 80s? Well, we're going to do that. But we are all in on this joke. It's in a real way it sort of breaks its own kayfabe yeah which is tragic this sort of wink wink nod nod to the audience that lets the audience be in on the inside of the joke it's one thing to watch something that takes place in the 80s and to be nostalgic about it it's another thing to watch something that takes place in the 80s and to be fully immersed in it purposefully immersed in it something like the uh, what is the name of that show? The Goldbergs does this better. Yes, I think than Stranger Things does. Yeah, at least more consistently in terms of yeah. its ability to sort of stay in the text and not come out here and say, "Isn't this cool?" to the audience. The Goldbergs has a very specific structure, which is before the first commercial break, we get that this is the 1980s, and this was a thing that happened in the 1980s. And if you were alive in the 1980s, you all remember this. But then it settles into a very routine sitcom sort of thing where there's a situation, there's a conflict. But it, that sort of conflict is not centered in the 1980s necessarily. It's one of those timeless general sitcom sort of things. And then at the third act is usually what they call the tearjerker because, you know, there's some sort of resolution where everybody cries and they play some song from the 1980s. So... They go back to it, but they do it in a way that because the central thesis, the central narrative of the episode is so powerful, they're just kind of hanging an 80s cloak over the top of it, which is much easier than having the 80s themselves be the central narrative. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I also wonder quite a bit about people our age who are now in control of the means of production, going back to the 80s and pillaging it like Tomb Raiders for their own <laughs> modern benefit. I think this 80s pillaging hit a brick wall recently in that there was a, a statement made by someone within one of the major film companies. I think it was Norman Lear. I think it was Norman Lear. Someone, Variety, was interviewing Norman Lear, and he had intimated that some very famous people, who he didn't want to name, want to redo The Princess Bride. Uh, do you remember this? I do remember this, and I got my pitchfork ready. There was talk about remaking The Princess Bride, and the internet shut down. It was brutal how swift and ugly the retribution was. Everyone, including people like Carrie Elwes, who's in the original, and Rob Reiner, who directed the original, coming out and saying, are, are you crazy? Are you, are you literally mad? There's no way you can do this. Universally, everyone was like, 
don't you dare. There's not a single person who thinks that that is a good idea. No. That there might be people who think, oh, we could make some money from this. And I have no doubt that they could. But in terms of the culture, no one thought this was a good idea. I think we found the point break for nostalgic uh, recovery. Right. And maybe it kind of shows that there is a little bit of burnout with the 1980s. The third season of Stranger Things was not nearly as received as well. The Goldbergs, I think, has been on for six or seven seasons. They're probably winding that down. Another one where you and I probably disagree on where kind of the breaking point was. For me, it was Ready Player One. Hmm. Yeah. We don't disagree that much, at least in terms of the film. Maybe in terms of the, of the novel, we might be in some disagreement, but I am not a huge fan of the film. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the film. It did some things well. It was actually kind of a good Spielberg movie if the book didn't exist. If we had never had any template for that or any expectations, it would have been an interesting sort of thing to tackle. I wasn't interested in a Spielberg film. I wanted to see Ready Player One. Right. Right. As far as that goes, though, a lot of people, especially students, because, again, tend to speak in 80s references, recommended this book for me. And I read it. And I was liking it for quite a while until we got probably three quarters of the way through. And it was just nothing but paragraphs of references for no reason, just to show that the author knew that this was a thing that existed. And once I read about five paragraphs that were like that, I said, you know what? This feels very exploitative to me. And it felt very pandering in a way that probably other things had pandered to me and I just <laughs> ate it up. But this felt right. so transparently pandering that I said, you know what, I'm going to finish the book. Uh, I'm, I'm into it. I'm going to see, does he win out in the end? But then kind of done with this. And I've been a little bit more 80s critical ever since. Yeah, I mean, I will concur that I do also think that the book is pandering to some extent, but I also think it's pandering to me specifically. As though Ernest Klein called my mom and my brother and sister and everyone who ever knew me and gathered all the things specifically for me and then wrote a book pandering specifically to <laughs> me. And there's something charming about that. There's something I kind of enjoy. There is. It's, it almost feels somewhat intimate. Like, oh, thank you. Like a, exactly. a book made on Etsy, you know? <laughs> Um, <laughs> it, it, it very much feels like a book made on Etsy yeah. for me specifically. Yeah. Um, and, and I get that. And, you know, I, I think it is important for us to stay in touch with our, our childhoods and our, our nostalgia. And these were the things that formed us as human beings. As, as we started out the podcast saying, you know, you watch comedy shows and then you integrate that into your own sense of humor, your sense of humor becomes part of your personality. So, Really, the, the way that you're integrating all of this media is it's influencing who you are as a person. And I think that one of the problems with that, if I can bring in Mark Fisher for a second, is or was a sociologist by the name of Mark Fisher. He recently passed away in 2017. But one of the things that he was so critical of was the commodification of nostalgia and the fact that we have so much. 80s, early 90s, and even late 1970s culture that is repackaged and redistributed to us, we've really stopped creating new things in a way that we used to. So everything harkens back to something prior to that. Because as you said, we grew up in an era where we studied the 1980s and our contemporaries who now own the means of production, they're recreating their childhood and packaging it to us as consumers. But one of the other things that he talks about is how when a culture does that, the popular culture starts to stagnate. And why I think it's instructive that you brought up WWE and NWA Power, NWA Power feels so much more creative than the WWE right now. WWE is not creating anything new that is worthwhile. 
And even AEW is is kind of recreating sort of that old original Nitro feel, even though it is you know, state-of-the-art wrestling. It does feel kind of like we have seen this type of stuff before. Uh, NWA Power is literally, we have seen this before, but it does so in a way that triggers that nostalgic thing for us. And what Fisher said is that this is all part of a thing called capitalist realism, and that is the commodification of our culture that is sold back to us, and we never create anything new out of that. And what that does is, one of the things that he looked at is the housing market crash of 2008, and how when we started to question capitalism, and maybe we started to say, hey, should we maybe make some structural changes because we've had the second worst economic collapse in the history of mankind? We didn't. We didn't have any imagination for that. We couldn't even imagine a different form of government outside of the capitalist structure. So one of the things that he was critical about is the way that this commodified nostalgia limits our ability to think of new things, including our inability to problem solve unless people tell us the answers. Fisher, uh, kind of a depressing guy. But yeah, it's a little, it's a little, it's defeatist. Yeah. It's just this side of Bukowski, really. Yeah. I mean, if you, <laughs> you sort of start getting your fingers into it a little bit. That said, I think that there's a core kernel of real truth in what he's saying. I don't know that for me it's, it's as, it's quite as maudlin, but I do think that there is absolutely this idea that culturally as a people we are running out of ideas just that all the things that can be thought have already been thought we're right. just we're running out of ideas people aren't doing things new or innovative anymore writ large although you do see innovation in uh, on smaller scales but anyone who's a 80s movie fan can tell you that there's no new ideas in Hollywood. We're sick of remakes. We're sick of reboots. We're sick of people taking things we love and making them worse just to make money um, as the sort of complete rebuffing of Disney's live action remakes is currently undergoing. I mean, are they making money internationally? Sure. But do people actually like them? Not so much. Right. And will they be remembered as fondly as the animated versions? Probably not. Probably not. You can't just go out and, you know, throw Emma Watson and Donald Glover and Beyonce into stuff and then have us forget that you're destroying things that we liked previously. Which should tell you exactly how much we don't like that because... Typically, if you said Beyonce, Donald Glover, and Emma Watson in something, I would be there. <laughs> anything, <Right>. anything else. <laughs> but yeah, I, the idea that they're taking these things that we love and just repackaging them and trying to sell them back to us, it does create a sort of feeling of almost despair that there is nothing new. And what Fisher called this was a canceled future. A future that we all thought of, you know, flying cars and cures for diseases, that doesn't even feel like it's on the radar anymore. It just feels like, <laughs> I just don't want to burn up. <laughs> or I, I would just like that in 15 years, Florida is still a thing. I don't know that I agree with that <laughs> sentiment, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, just the idea that we, we don't even look to the future as a positive thing anymore. I can't even think of the last time other than when you and I talked about Demolition Man, and even that was, you know, the future is going to be pretty screwed up. I can't think of the last film or movie that looked to the future as something positive. It's always this dystopian, there's some sort of society where kids have to battle each other and they're trying to eat each other and you know, people are starving. There's no positivity in any of it. And I think that these two things are really tied together. Part of it is probably, Fisher also says that one of the things that happens is that when a culture goes through a national tragedy or trauma, we will look to the past. And I think 
you can point directly to 9-11 because that's when we really started to see these 80s properties and 80s culture be recycled. It feels like that we are packaging this stuff and revisiting the 80s in a way that's almost like a time machine. I wish I could go back to this time, make different decisions, and change the future so that it is not as traumatic. I'm all for going back into the archives, so to speak, and bringing a thing out if you're going to make it in some way good. doesn't even have to be better. But if you're going to make a thing and it's going to be good and it's going to be new, then I'll entertain it. For example, I've actually really enjoyed the sequel, which is actually a prequel, to The Dark Crystal. Yes. Yeah. It's 10 episodes. It's really well done. The voice cast is amazing. And it's doing something new. It's telling a new story. It's doing something fresh. It's very heavy if you've watched it. It is, as as my wife and I discussed after a few episodes, it is the the Muppet Walking Dead <laughs> is really what it is. Yes, I've heard it referred to as Muppet Game of Thrones, too. So, Well, but it, it's less Game of Thrones and more Walking Dead because you already know what the ending is. Right. Because you've seen the Dark Crystal. So you know only two Gelflings are going to make it. So every other character that you enjoy, every other character you like, every other character you're into, they're all going to die. And we already know that. So we're just sitting around waiting for when this next character we like is going to get whacked. Which is the more, you know, makes it all the more impressive that it is able to be compelling when you know what the end is. Another of my friends and colleagues referred to it as more like Muppet Rogue One. (laughs) That's a really good description. Yeah. Yeah. It it just is. It's, you know, there's this resistance fighters, but we know they're not all going to make it. As a matter of fact, we know none of them are going to make it. So... It's just a matter of how. Exactly. It's just a matter of how. Yeah, I, I think that you make a really great point that there is a time for remakes, reboots, revivals, whatever you want to call them, uh, especially when you can take something that was previously problematic and make it better. So, you know, a lot of the narratives that we grew up with, even prior generations to us, if we could take this thing and make it. Yeah, maybe not as racist. That that's a good thing. <laughs> if we could take this thing and have it say something different about gender as we view gender in 2019 versus how we view gender in 1959. For example, just this week in my pop culture class, we watched an episode of the Andy Griffith show, and one of the running jokes is that Otis the town drunk was in jail for hitting his wife in the or his mother-in-law in the mouth with a leg of lamb. And that would never go today as it shouldn't. But it was this running joke throughout the episode that the only language that a woman understands is a leg of lamb to the mouth. And <laughs> that was, a, you know, I, I sat there watching it with my students who were horrified by it, but rightly so. But I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> Not that I'm saying that we need to remake the Andy Griffith show, but just the idea that you know we can learn from where we came from, that that is not okay. And when we make things that are either reminiscent or have kind of the same basic thesis behind the show, we can at least look back and say, oh, we don't need to repeat that. <laughs> That, that, that can go away. I'm kind of down with a thing that wants to remake something that I used to like in ways that are less problematic. For example, don't go back and pilfer the Princess Bride. The Princess Bride is perfectly fine the way it is. Go back and grab every John Hughes movie and make it not vaguely creepy. <laughs> Those movies were so integral to my psyche as a teenager and a young adult and I would love to see versions of those that aren't also completely sexist and racist and vaguely homophobic. That would be great. That would be great. That definitely is one of those things where John Hughes did some things that were way ahead of his time, like questioning toxic masculinity, but also some things in there that were horribly problematic, like John Bender and Long Claire. Duck Dong. Yeah, Long Duck Dong. And 
yeah, there's, there's just some of those things where you're watching with someone who is maybe younger than you and they're just glaring at you like, how could you put up with this? Like, how did, right. how did someone not show up at Columbia TriStar or whoever and threaten to right. burn the place down? Although I did try to connect something the other day to my my very favorite of the John Hughes movies, which is Some Kind of Wonderful. Uh-huh. And I had an entire room full of students look at me blankly as though I was talking about Homer's Odyssey. Like, <laughs> it was so far back before their consciousness that no idea what I was talking about. Which is, again, one of those weird things where you and I, that to me when I was growing up was on the level of The Breakfast Club. They, they were all just Absolutely. part of the, the canon. But The Breakfast Club has survived as just one of those things that comes from the 80s that we put in the time capsule. Whereas some kind of wonderful, or I, I can't think of the kind of the inversion of that that he made the previous year. Pretty I think pink. it might have been Pretty in Pink. Yeah. Those haven't survived nearly as well as but they're categorically better movies right that's what makes it so weird is that there's this one thing that has survived and everyone goes back to it in the same way that flock of seagulls was not the best song (laughs) you know i ran this this was not the best music that we had at that time but it's the stuff that survives as a cultural marker for that time period yeah, it's just, it's so weird to me. We don't remember Some Kind of Wonderful and Pretty in Pink, but we do remember The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller. Yes. Somehow there's a level of unfairness in that that I find hard to fathom. Right, and I'm not sure why that is. It may be, again, going back to things like the, the DVD distributor. They, they just decided to package all these movies in a, a, an 80s pack, and that's why it survived. They, they decided... These are the films that we're going to put in this five-disc set from the 80s, and we're not going to put in some kind of wonderful, uh, and we're not going to put in The Last Dragon. (laughs) We're not going to put in Excalibur. We're not going to put in Real Genius. We're going to put these specific movies in, and you know, people buy them, and they say, oh, well, I guess that was what the 80s were like. But it wasn't. It really wasn't. I think that's the point. Now that's what I call 80s. No, that's what you call 80s. What I call 80s is completely different. Right. Uh, there is no version of 80s nostalgia for me that does not include show enough. Exactly. So... <laughs> we may have to do an entire episode just on that. <laughs> uh, just on The Last Dragon, I am absolutely down with that. That's a completely different kind of show, perhaps, than maybe the deconstruction workers <laughs> is as a whole. But on the other hand, maybe not. Maybe we'll do it as bonus Patreon subscriber content. There you go. Just D- Dustin and I breaking down The Last Dragon. A, a most fantastic 1980s movie. If we could do Demolition Man, we can do The Last Dragon. <laughs> exactly. But for this episode, I think we've probably arrived at that point that we always get to, which is the 1980s. So what? The 1980s were a big time of cultural upheaval, mainly due to differing uh, legislation, differing technologies that allowed the consumers of the 1980s to revisit and recycle and memorize and integrate pop culture into their personalities in a way that previously hadn't been done. I would say that there are some problems that came along with that and that it also created a sort of arrested development in our culture. But by and large, it's still a thing that is so ingrained in me and my personality that every time I go back and revisit a movie or hear a song on the radio, I am eight years old again, and I really love that for whatever reason. I come down in much the same way. The 1980s, for better or worse, completely defined who a large swath of us became as people. There are certainly benefits to that. There are certainly drawbacks to that as well. The 1980s unquestionably has some of the best popular culture ever made, primarily because people won't stop stealing it and remaking it in ways that are hugely problematic. There is room to see 80s popular culture capital as a language, as a as an entry point for language among people who are in similar time spaces, in similar time frames. And more people should see The Last Dragon. <laughs> 
<laughs> I would agree with that. Cosine. <laughs> Um, and also, Ready Player One could have been such a better movie. But that's, again, a whole different show. Hey, 20 years from now, they might remake it. So, <laughs> <laughs> True story. So, for Dustin Dunaway, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers. Thank you so much for joining us. We will be back in two weeks. Until then, have a good rest of your week. Thanks for joining me today, Dustin. Thank you. The Deconstruction Workers Podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcast DCW. Check out the deconstructionworkers.com or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the deconstruction workers. The deconstruction workers podcast is recorded on the beautiful university of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the deconstruction workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and academic public engagement. The deconstruction workers podcast is copyright 2019 all rights reserved.